Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Shalom, shalom, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of Image Bearers Radio here on Hebrew Nation Online or at outofashesministries.org or on our mobile app available on iPhone and Android or wherever you might be listening to iTunes, Google Podcasts or wherever you are. Uh, welcome back to another week, and I'm super excited uh, to be back with you guys this week. Uh, my family and I just completed a uh, family vacation in one of our favorite places uh, of all time, the Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg, Tennessee area. Um, just absolutely love that area of the country and its beauty and its people, and uh, we are back and excited uh, to be back and to be back with you guys this week week. Um, lots of things coming up, but one thing I want to just remind you of, first of all, if it's your first time stopping by the, the radio show or the podcast, let me just say uh, shalom. Hey, welcome. It's great to uh, to have you listening. And uh, if you're a long-time listener, of course, thank you guys for keeping coming back and catching up on these. And uh, I appreciate it very much. So, uh, really important that's coming up. Uh, we'll just remind you again, uh, Hanok Young, uh, tour guide extraordinaire and um, the uh, leader and creator of Kol Yehuda, um, is going to be with us the third weekend in January. That's just a little bit, uh, you know, just a little bit of time away. That's the 14th, 15th, and 16th of January. And uh, it's his first trip to the States, back to the States in over two years. Uh, he is a tour guide in Israel, and um, because of all the restrictions and lockdowns and because of the pandemic, has not been able to work and uh, has just been, been studying and preparing for the next trip back to America. So um, I pray that if you don't get to catch him here, then you can catch him somewhere maybe where he's around in your area. And uh, also that weekend, we're we're using his uh, his gonna his being here. Um, we're using that to just as a way to invite uh, an opportunity to invite all of our online folks that watch or listen online that are part of our online mishpacha, our online family. We are calling it the OAM Family Reunion Weekend. So uh, if you listen and watch us uh, on Shabbat mornings at 10 a.m., uh, or if you listen to the podcast and you consider yourself a part of OAM or you, you're connected to us somehow, we'd love to have you come in uh, for that weekend. Uh, Thursday evening, I'm sorry, Friday evening, we're going to have uh, just a, a, a nice relaxed Arev Shabbat meal all together, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll say the blessings, and we'll, we'll have a great meal together in time of fellowship, uh, and then Shabbat morning at 10 a.m., we'll have our normal service, and then uh, we'll have Oneg together, and then in the afternoon, Shabbat afternoon, we'll have two more sessions with Hanok, 
And then Sunday morning, we'll have two sessions in the morning, and then we'll break before lunch. And so um, I invite you to guys to come in. If you have any questions about accommodations or scheduling or anything, please let us know. Uh, you can Facebook message us. You can call my cell phone or send a text, or you can um, you know, send us an email, contact at outofashesministries.org. However, but we would love to see you guys. Some of you are so, many of you are so faithful and so uh, connected, and we'd love, if it's at all possible for you, uh, to hug your neck, some of you to meet you for the first time in person. And uh, so that's what's coming up uh, super quick. And so I just wanted to remind you all about that. So uh, before we get into today's episode, as we usually do, let's go to the Father in prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and our King, we are so humbly grateful for who you are and that you've called us to partner with you in this uh, this this human project on this earth. So, Father, I pray that you would strengthen us and give us hope as we spread your light in our world. So if you are following us on Shabbat, or if you're joining with us on Shabbat, uh, again, we live stream every uh, Shabbat at 10 a.m. Central from Out of Ashes Ministries uh, here in DeRitter, Louisiana. And uh, if you join with us at all, um, you'll know that many times our podcast kind of follows Shabbat um, because there's things that I didn't get to say or that I, uh, I maybe I forgot to say or things I just want to expound upon Um uh, from Shabbat, and I do that usually on the podcast if we don't have guests or something like that. So, and, and this week is no different. So, if you were with us um, this last Shabbat, um, the title of my teaching was the challenge with Emmanuel, or the challenge of Emmanuel. And uh, I know that most of you listening to this podcast, this radio show, don't celebrate Christmas. Um, we don't either, but uh, we're surrounded probably by friends and family that do. And, of course, we're surrounded by a culture that does. And so, you know, whether you celebrate Christmas or not, we're just on the, you know, on the heels of Christmas. By the time you're hearing this, we're halfway through the week, and it'll be, uh, you know, on the uh, Gregorian calendar, it'll be New Year's Day uh, coming up in just a couple of days this next Shabbat. Uh, but we're surrounded with Christmas. And while we don't celebrate, I think that uh, we can still use this time as a time to reflect, um, a time to audit ourselves, a time to think about um, what uh, what the message of the season means? I'm not talking about. I know I know he wasn't born on December 25th. I know that there's allusions to pagan backgrounds and all. And we're not going to get into all those discussions. Um, I will just say this: if you've ever read the Tale of Two Babylons by uh, uh, by uh, Hislop, uh, or if you have it on your bookshelf, listen. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but throw it in the trash, okay? Um, there's a lot of conclusions that he comes uh, comes to that are just not founded. Um, his book has been rejected several times by the scholarly community. Um, so anyway, that's all I'll say about that. But uh, you know, we know all the we know all the stuff, um, and it still doesn't change the fact that we have to deal with it. And so if we're going to live in a culture and we're going to be, you know, in this exile where most people are not celebrating uh, the Moedim, 
let's at least use it as a time to reflect, right? And so that's what I've been doing ever since Sukkot. Uh, I've been actually been thinking about the Christmas season ever since Sukkot and uh, and how I wanted to handle it this year, how I wanted to think about it this year. What you know, even though. Like I said, we don't celebrate. It affects us, of course. You can't turn on the TV without it being Christmas movies. You can't go into a store without, you know, Christmas trees throwing up on you, etc. So uh, I began thinking during Sakota about the concept of Emmanuel. And uh, I want you to think just for a few moments, um, what does it mean to you when you hear the when you hear Emmanuel? We, of course, we know it means God with us, right? But what does that mean to you? Um, you know, what is, what feelings does it evoke? What truth does it mean for you? Um, and I want you to kind of think about that as we, as we go through this. So of course we get this allusion, you know, to Yeshua being Emmanuel, um, during this season, the birth, uh, because it comes out of Matthew chapter one. And so what I want to do in this episode, probably two, uh, maybe even three episodes. I don't know. We'll see is I want to kind of take the concept of Emmanuel. And on Shabbat, we've taught about Emmanuel several times, uh, but I want to just rethink it again um, because there are challenges. If if God is with us, even though he didn't wasn't born on December 25th, that out of the way, if, if Hashem is with us through the Messiah, through Yeshua, um, there are a lot of positives to that, but there are some challenges to that. And that's the part that I want to focus on because I think we're missing some opportunities maybe to really be effective and to really be uh, engaging in the partnership that Hashem has called us called us to. So, of course, this comes from Matthew uh, chapter 1, and so I'm going to read verses 18 through 25 for you. And it says, Now the birth of Yeshua the Messiah happened this way, when his mother Miriam was engaged to Yosef, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And Yosef, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, made his mind to dismiss her secretly. But while he considered these things, behold, an angel of Adonai appeared to him in a dream, saying, Yosef, son of David, do not be afraid to take Miriam as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from Ruach HaKodesh. She will give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by Adonai through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Yosef awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of Adonai commanded him and took Miriam as his wife, but he did not know her intimately until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Yeshua. Okay, so... What I want to do is I want to go back to the beginning, which is where if you follow my teaching or you've heard me teach at all, um, I always like to go back to Genesis and start there uh, and, be, and and see how these things are established. And so we're going to do that. We're going to go back to Bereshit and we're going to read uh, Bereshit ch- chapter 3 and we're only going to read verses 6 through 10. And I want to look at different places in the Tanakh where this idea of God with us not the formal name Emmanuel, but the idea, the concept of God with us, and see um, what this means, how, why it's important, and and some of, kind of start to pick some of this stuff apart. So, if we read Bereshit chapter three, verse six through ten, it says, "Now the woman, this is talking about Hava Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, the tree of knowledge, it's the at." 
was good for food and that it was a thing of lust for the eyes. And she saw that the tree was desirable for imparting wisdom. So she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they saw that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of Adonai Elohim going to and fro in the garden in the wind of the day. So the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Adonai Elohim in the midst of the tree of the garden. Then Adonai Elohim called and said uh, to the man, and, and he said to him, Where are you? And he said, You're sound. I heard it in the garden, and I was afraid because I'm naked, and I hid myself. So let's just take a second here. Again, if you've caught any of our Genesis uh, series stuff, then these concepts will be really uh, familiar to you, hopefully. Um, but for those of you that haven't, we talk about Genesis differently. Um, we, I've been inspired by several scholars and, and several ways of thinking that, that I like and that helps Genesis, that's really helpful for Genesis for me. So instead of taking a traditional creation science approach to Genesis, um, I read it more religiously in an ancient context. And so for me, um, on day on, on the, the first week of creation, or the week of creation, um, when Hashem creates humanity on day four, um, for me, that's not a creation of Adam and Eve. For me, that's a creation of population of humans. Um, all during the creation week, God is doing population creation. Birds, fish, animals, trees, you know, grass, seeds, it's all population. He doesn't make two fish or two birds or two monkeys or whatever. He, he's doing population. So for me, the, the, the creation week is about God creating humans. And then chapter two of Bereshit, the garden scene, is Hashem taking one of those humans, Adam, and placing him in a place of uh, priest-king. Uh, as far as he is, he is Hashem's representative to the rest of humanity. And of course, he creates Hava or brings Hava alongside him. And we, of course, we know from the Torah that priests had to be married. That's a requirement to be a, a priest and to serve in the tabernacle uh, was that they had to be married. And so you have this picture uh, and then the language of take dominion and et cetera, et cetera. Um, we know that in the ancient world, I'm just throwing a lot of stuff at you, but just just keep up. Um, in the ancient world, Dr. Dina Dye says that kings were also known as uh, uh, horticulturalists. They were gardeners, right? Uh, and because it was their job to to raise a garden and to feed their people. And if the king was successful and had a lush, lavish garden, his people were blessed. Also, uh, a king in the um, in the ancient world, when they would conquer another land, they would bring trees back that were native to the conquered land back to their land, and they would plant them in their royal garden as a sign of their dominance and the expanse of their kingdom. Right, so you have these trees. You have this all this this garden. Eden, of course, is a sacred space. It's a temple picture. Um, and that's what all this is about. So if you're you're like, what in the world are you talking about? Go back on our website. Uh, we have a whole playlist that's just on our Genesis stuff. I don't even know how many weeks there are, how many uh, teachings there are. It's a bunch where we break all this stuff down and we show um, 
you know, we have sources and we show all how this stuff connects together. But for the sake of time, we have, let's say, let's say my rendering is accurate and we have a, a group of people that are created and then the, the God calls one of them out as he does over and over throughout scripture, right? He calls out Noah he, from among them. He calls out uh, Avraham from among them. He calls out, you know, Joseph from among them. Uh, he calls out Israel, uh, Moses from among them. Then he calls out Israel from among them. He calls out David, right? He, he's always doing this thing. So let's just say there's a humanity and he calls out Adam. And the, the whole thing is that Adam and Eve, Adam and Hava are in uh, the garden that is in Eden. They're in the, if you want to say it, they're in the holy place, right? And there's a tree in the midst of the holy place, and that's the holy of holies, if we want to think about it in a temple structure. And so the the whole thing about um, about God being with them, so they heard his sound, right, in the garden. They heard his sound in the wind. And we have the idea of, you know, that, that Hashem walked with Adam in the cool of the day. God is with them, and they are in his sacred space, right? So this is going to be really, this is just going to be over and over and over again uh, confirmed as we look through Scripture, this idea. So picture Eden as this temple type of situation, and you have the priests that are there working, and the whole reason for a temple or for a sacred space is so that the deity, in our case Hashem, the creator of the universe, comes and dwells there, right? We're going to pick this up later on in Exodus, but before we get there, we've got a couple other places to stop. So that's the idea that the, the, that Hashem is with them, okay? And so we have this Emmanuel concept. So let's jump over. We're going to skip way ahead in the story to Bereshit 28, Genesis chapter 28, and we're going to read verses 10 through 19. This is really cool. So it says, Then Yaakov, Jacob, left Beersheba and went toward Haran, he happened upon a certain place and spent the night there, for the sun had set. So he took one of the stones from the place and put it by his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed, and all of a sudden there was a stairway, note that because we're going to come back to it, that was set up on the earth and its top reaching to the heavens. And behold, angels of God were going up and down on it. Surprisingly, Adonai was standing on top of it, and he said, I am Adonai, the God of your father, Avraham, and the God of Yitzhak. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your seed. Your seed will be as the dust of the land, and you will burst forth to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed or will bless themselves. And in your seed, behold, I am with you, I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not forsake you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob woke up from his sleep and said, Undoubtedly, Adonai is in this place, and I was unaware. So he was afraid and said, How fearsome this place is. This is none other than the house of God. This must be the gate of heaven. Early in the morning, Jacob got up and took the stone which he had placed by his head, and he set it up as a memorial stone and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bet-El although originally the city's name was Luz. Bet-El, of course, means the house of God. So let's think about this, this story in the context of Eden, in the context of Emmanuel, right? So it's nighttime. Jacob goes to sleep. He has this dream. And in this dream, there's a ladder or a stairway. And there's angels, and it says the top reaches the heavens, and the angels are going up and down. Now, another thing we need to understand from the ancient writings and ancient cultures is that um, 
all of the ancient people, they all worshipped their gods on mountains, on high places. Um, the Bible talks over and over about high places, bemot, right? B-E-M-O-T, bemot, high places where the gods were worshipped, where they'd set up an altar, etc. And the thought was, the concept was that when you are on the earth, you're here just on regular ground, your, your base humanity, right? Your base humanity, not much different than the animals, right? Beastly in nature. And these temples, if you think probably the closest thing we have to kind of get the picture is the Mayan temples. If you look at the Mayan uh, temples, it's, a, it's really a ziggurat kind of thing where you have stairways that go up on, on four sides. And, and so in the ancient world, the, the top is where the God rested, is where the king would ascend to and he would meet with God, with the God there. And the top was known, the top of the temple, the mountain was known as heaven. And so if you didn't have a mountain to worship on, you built one. That's called a ziggurat. You know, it's a man-made mountain. And so the top of the, the, the temple, the top of the mountain is called heaven in the ancient writings. And so you ascend these steps. And then as you ascend, what in Hebrew is called aliyah, to ascend, as you ascend, you, you bridge the gap between the earthly and the spiritual realm, and you become more... Uh, more than just a base human, your your nature is elevated, your soul is elevated as you meet with the divine. And then you bring that elevation back down to the rest of the people. And so if we think about Jacob's dream, this is what it sounds like a lot. So instead of picturing a stairway or a ladder, picture a, a ziggurat, a, a, a temple um, with stairs that are going up. And the angels are acting like priests and they're going up and down and they are delivering uh, and serving the, the word of Hashem. And so he says, God is in this place, right? This is the house of God. And what we talk about in, 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 in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden, it's a temple, it's a sacred space kind of thing. And what happens? God is there, walking and talking and working with Adam and Hava, right? The, the king slash priest. So it's, the, it's, a, it's a really similar type picture um, because this is the way the ancients thought. Of course it would be similar. Anytime you come to a place where there is God, where there's Hashem, it's going to be a sacred space, high place, mountain. There's going to be usually trees involved, not in this story, but Abraham has a lot of tree imagery. Um, and it's going to be an elevated place, etc. And the point is that there is a space where Hashem is, and he is with Jacob there at Bethel, right? So really cool uh, just a different way to you know think about it than I ever really really have that story, and so we have other places in Bereshit where we have this concept of God being with someone. Um, one thing I didn't point out in the in the Jacob story just prior is the the promise that Hashem gives that Adonai gives right that he will he will be as the uh, as the dust who will bless him you know all over. That's a lot like the Eden challenge to go and multiply. Uh, and subdue the earth, right? Um, grow and reproduce and subdue the earth. That's the same. There's, there's that. That's part of the blessing. That part that comes from God being with, with you. So, as we look at other places in Bereshit, go back a couple chapters in Bereshit twenty six verse three. It says, Hashem saying to Yitzhak, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father, Avraham. So this idea of God being with him, Emmanuel. Uh, later on in Bereshit 31, 
the, then Hashem said to Yaakov, return to the land of your fathers and your relatives, and I will be with you. Uh, 46, Bereshit 46, verse 4, I will go down with you to Egypt, and you will, and I will uh, also surely bring you up again, and Yosef will close your eyes. So, this idea of Emmanuel, even though it's not, it's, you know, Jacob, Yaakov doesn't wake up and say, this is Bet-El, and it is Emmanuel, it, but it's the sense that God is with you, and it's always tied to a um, a sacred space temple type of uh, type of imagery, right? We also have this, again, in Genesis 48, in 1 Kings, in the Exodus. Um, it, it's all over the place. I mean, you just go on and on and on, the New Testament as well. And so... When we come back after the break, I want to jump into Exodus and read just one of my favorite, favorite, favorite uh, passages in Exodus. And I want to kind of just tie a bow on this and and uh, bring it together uh, if you're still wondering kind of how all this stuff works together. Uh, as we talk about God being here, Emmanuel, in sacred space. So, hey, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back right after the break. Shalom, everybody. Okay, welcome back to the second segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio, where we are talking about the challenge of Emmanuel. So, uh, again, like we said in the first episode, we've just come off the heels of Christmas, and while we don't celebrate Christmas, um, I want to use this time as a way to uh, reflect and to be able to have conversations with my friends and family that do celebrate Christmas. And so I think it's good for us to think about, instead of just going, ah, Christmas is pagan and you shouldn't be celebrating it, you're going to hell, whatever, whatever. No, let's make this time productive and let's have some, some conversations. So I know it's over, but, you know, it'll come again next year. So, uh, And by then you'll have forgotten we even did these episodes, but you can refer back to them. So... I want to go now to Exodus, uh, Shemot chapter 25, and I want to read just two verses, and I want to talk about this uh, in the first part of this second segment. So Shemot chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, to me, a couple of the most beautiful passages in Shemot, just maybe because I love temple study, whatever. But um, Hashem tells, uh, tells Moshe, have them make me a sanctuary. Or have a make make a sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them. All right, now I'm going to get excited here for a second. So, so this is speaking of the tabernacle, of course, right? So God says, "Have them make me a, a tent, right, that they can take with them." Um, and and He's going to go into giving all the details, you know, and, and all the all the things later on in the subsequent chapters. But make. Have them make me a tabernacle, a sanctuary, for what purpose? So that I may dwell among them, so that I can be with my people, so that I can be with my creation. Now, the question, I mean, there's a lot of, there's just so much stuff that can come out of these two. Let me finish reading them, reading the verses. He says, for you are to make it all precisely 
according to everything that I show you, the pattern, that Hebrew word tavnit, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of the furnishings within, just so you must make it. So where did this tavnit, where did this pattern come from? Well, it comes from when he's up on the mountains, on the mountaintop, right? On Sinai. And, um, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about this. You know, what did he see? How did, how did this work, et cetera? But even the idea of Sinai itself, check this out, right? So even the idea of Sinai itself, he goes up the mountain to Sinai, and what, is, what does he find up on the mountaintop? He finds Hashem, right? <laughs> the cloud and the lightning and the thunder and, you know, the fire and all, all the different things. And, by the way, there is a burning bush up there that he encountered, you know, before so there's, there's all that sounds like a lot like eden and it sounds a lot like this the temples of the ancient near east and so uh he goes up and he meets with god he goes up to heaven moshe does right that's that's what the imagery is and 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 uh shimon even tells us exodus even tells us that he sees like you know the the feet of of, of hashem or whatever and he sees this sapphire um techelet uh type which is the floor of the throne room right i mean just Come on, guys. This is like this is this is temple stuff, and so he says, "I want you to to go down and tell them. I want you to make. I want them to make me a sanctuary. We would call it later the Mishkan, Mishkan that I may dwell. That phrase is Vishakanti in Hebrew, Vishakanti, um, it, it, that I may dwell. So we, you know, if you've been in church any amount of time, you heard about the Shekinah glory of God. If you're from the south, it's the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory, right? <laughs> and um, you know, people have had experiences where in, in worship service or whatever, you know, they see this haze in the church or whatever, and they, you know, they, that, that's the Shekinah glory. Um, but this word, Shekinah, is the, it's the dwelling presence. It's the, it's the dwelling. And the Vishakanti that I may dwell, Shekanti, Shekinah, Shekinah, um, and a Mishkan, a Mishkan is the dwelling place. Right, so the dwelling, the the presence, the shkinah, right? Uh, it vishakantis, it dwells in the mishkan. So you have three words there that are you know basically the same in just different forms, noun, verb, whatever. And so you have this idea that Hashem says, "I want Him to make me a special place so that I can come down and I can partner. I can partner. I can be with my creation. I can live amongst them." That's that sounds like Emmanuel, right? <laughs> that sounds like Emmanuel. And and what I want to kind of push back on and one of the the parts of the challenge of Emmanuel is we as Christians we tend to think, well, yeah, but you know, the tabernacle was limited or whatever, you know, it some think some negative things about the tabernacle and temple because you had to go through priests and you had to bring blood sacrifice and you had to do all this stuff and now God just lives in my heart. Well, we're going to talk about why that's a challenge. Uh, we might get to it this episode, but if not, either way, later on we're going to talk about why that is a challenge, why that's both an opportunity and a blessing and a challenge, and one I think is maybe one of the biggest ones that we have in the way we think about Scripture and how we think about Shekinah, the, the dwelling presence of Hashem. So um, have them make a sanctuary that I may dwell. Okay, so if, if Hashem is going to dwell among his people, there's a sanctuary and uh, a tabernacle, and it's to be made a precisely according to this pattern that Moshe was shown, right? And so that he may dwell. Now, we know about the tabernacle. 
Um, we, you know, there's been study about the tabernacle forever, and the tabernacle has some really unique features. Um, first of all, the tabernacle is built in a, 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 a three-part. It's a three-part structure. So you have the outer court, where you have the altar and the brazen laver, which is the brazen laver is like a representation not only of cleansing waters, but also the waters of chaos, of creation, okay? And then you have the, uh, the holy place in which you have the menorah, which is a, uh, a throwback or a, a, a emblem of the tree of life, the Etz, the Etz Chaim. You have the uh, Lechem HaPanim, the showbread, or the, the bread of presence, the bread of faces. Um, and then you have the incense altar, which represents the prayers of the priest and of the people. And then the third is you have the Holy of Holies. So outer court, inner court, Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is the Aron Kodesh, the Holy Ark, uh, wherein is the Ten Commandments, etc., etc., right? So a three-part thing. If we go back to Eden, we see the same thing. Hashem creates the world, which is his, but creates the world. That's Let's call that the outer court. He creates a garden in Eden. So there's an Eden place, which would be like the inner court. And then there's a garden in the Eden place, which would be like the Holy of Holies, where there's the tree, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's this tertiary uh, three-part type of, of structure. And so we know that. We know that the curtains going into the Holy of Holies have embroidered on them, or to the holy place, excuse me, have embroidered in them uh, constellations. All the curtains have these constellation stars, um, you know, the sun, the moon, angelic type figures and all that. The, the, the creation of the tabernacle was supposed to model and refer back to creation itself. So this is why, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I think it's, it's beneficial to not read the creation story in the first couple of chapters of Genesis as science. Um, when our vacation the last couple of weeks, we made the trip up from Tennessee up to Kentucky and we went to the Ark Encounter. And um, I mean, it's amazingly well done, right? I mean, it is, if you've been, it's, you walk up to that boat and it's just like, it's overwhelming. I mean, it's like sensory overload. And the exhibits and all the things are, are really, 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 really well done. However, it's all science, and, and I saw nothing about the flood being about recreation or cleansing the earth as God's temple or, you know, n- new creation or none of that. And, and I think we miss a huge part of the story, part of the thread that runs through all of Scripture all the way until Revelation and ends in Revelation all of this is about God dwelling with his people on earth. It's all about Emmanuel, but it's about there being a place that is able to be that connection point. And we have buildings in the Tanakh. We have the Mishkan. We have the first temple, the second temple, and now we have our own hearts. But we make that statement in a little bit of naivety and a little bit of ignorance because we say, well, that was then. Now we have them in our hearts. And the, obviously the scriptures we've read, I hope you can see that the point was for God to always be in your heart, right? That was all. It was always two circumcisions. There was always a circumcision of flesh and the circumcision of the heart. We hear that way back in the beginning of the Torah. 
So it's not like a, well, it was that, and then now it's in our heart, like it's more, something more. No, Hashem was always, what, do you, what is the cry of the prophets? The cry of the prophets is repent and turn your hearts back towards Hashem. So, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little ranty, but that's, uh, th- this, it's not like, well, that was then, this is now. No, it was always supposed to be this way. And there is a devotion and dedication that I don't want to step on my, my points that will come later, but, but we're, we're getting there. So the, the tabernacle was supposed to reference and, and refer back to creation. Hashem is creator and all of creation worshiping him as the one and only true God. So now we're going to go to Isaiah, and I want to read Isaiah chapter 7. Um, we're going to read probably... Most of it. <laughs> um, we're going to read Isaiah chapter 7, because this is where Matthew's quote comes from. And he just says, and Matthew says, as is spoken, you know, fulfillment, as is spoken by the prophet. And of course, everybody in his day knew exactly what he was talking about. Um, and sometimes we have to be reminded. So let's examine Isaiah chapter 7, and let's see what is happening. So first of a little background on Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is unique prophet, one of the unique prophets, known as a major prophet. There's major and minor, or major and lesser, or whatever. And all it has to do with is the length of their books. Um, that's the classification of major and minor prophets, or greater and lesser prophet, whatever. It's just the length of their books. Isaiah's um, interesting because uh, he is Isaiah is quoted the most of any prophet uh, in the New Testament. He is by far quoted the most, far and away, over 400 times. Um, Isaiah begins to prophesy just as the Assyrian war machine is really stoking up. So uh, just really quick flyover history. We've done this several times, so you should know this. But for those of you that don't, of course, you have the United Kingdom of Israel under uh, David Amelech, King David. And then you have Shlomo. And then after Shlomo, you have the kingdom splits between the northern and the southern kingdoms, Judah, Benjamin, Levi, there's a mishmash of everybody in the south, and then you have the quote-unquote ten tribes in the north. And Assyria, and, and so day under David and Solomon is Israel's golden age, right? The second temple is built, et cetera, et cetera. After the split, Israel becomes very, very weak, and you have some major players that are on the scene, some major empires that are on the scene that are they're, they're vying for power back and forth. You have Egypt to the south, And then to the north and northeast, you have Assyria and Babylon, right? So Assyria would be current-day Syria-ish. And then you have Babylon, which would be Iraq or so. And so you have these major world powers, and you have little bitty split now splintered Israel right in the middle, okay? This, This land, by the way, which was promised to Yaakov, which we read about, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, as was going to be the place where Hashem dwelt with his people, right? So again, you have this tertiary structure. You have the whole earth, which is Hashem's. You have the, you have the land of Israel, right? Which is, uh, you could say that's kind of like the, uh, the inner court, or the outer court, rather, the land of Israel. Then you have Jerusalem, which is like the inner court. Then you have the Temple Mount, which is like the Holy of Holies, right? So this kind of three-part structure to the, the sacred space, the land of Israel. And now Israel, the, the sacred space, the place where God promised to dwell with his people is divided. It's, it's torn apart. And so you have, it's, it's, a, you know, it's just a massively catastrophic event um, for the nation of Israel. And you have all this 
infighting and civil war. You have folks from the north that are partnering with pagan nations to try to overthrow Israel, and that's where we kind of come to in Isaiah chapter 7. So uh, in verse 1 it says, In the days of Ahaz, son of Yotam, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, King Razin of Aram and King Pekah, son of Ramalia of Israel, so that's northern kingdom, right, uh, went up to attack Jerusalem, but they could not mount an attack against it. So Ahaz, Ahaz is the king of Jerusalem, a king of the southern kingdom, and he is now being uh, attacked or threatened by his northern kingdom brothers and these other nations. And verse 2 says, is when the house of David heard that Aram had allied himself with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So he's freaking out, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's having a meltdown. He's losing it. He's scared to death. Verse 3, then Hashem said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz, you and your son, um, She'er Yeshuv, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, take heed, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. I love that. Because of the fierce anger of Razin and Aram, the son of Ramalia. So this is the message of Isaiah to Ahaz in the seventh chapter of Isaiah. This is the message. I know we're going to get to the prophecy and stuff later, but this is really important. We skip this to get to the, the, the money verse, right, which Matthew quotes, but we can't. This is the prophecy. This is the message where he says, be quiet, take heed, don't fear, don't let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps. So Isaiah, Hashem sends Isaiah, the prophet, to Ahaz. So one of the things we have to understand is that if you look at the prophets, I know we have quote-unquote prophets today, and if you've been in certain circles like I have, um, you've probably been burned by quote-unquote prophets, right? Um, but if you look at the, the biblical prophets, there's one big collection of them, and there's kind of three hot spots where the prophets show up. One is pre-exile, where the prophets are like troubles coming, and the prophets are sent to tell the people, tell the leadership, especially the kings and priests, hey, you guys better repent, you better clean up your act, because this is coming. In this case, Assyria. Assyria is coming. They're going to come swallow you up if you don't get your stuff together. And so the, you have prophets that are kind of pre-exile. Then you have prophets that are mid-exile, that are during the exilic period, where they're coming to give hope because things are in crisis the nation is in crisis. Before exile, obviously it's in crisis. During exile, it's in crisis. People have been ripped from their land. They've been ripped from their home. Someone else is living in your house, sitting at your table. Somebody else's kids are playing in your yard and sleeping in their beds. They're in crisis, and they're wondering, where is God? What is the promise of God still good for us? Does God still even want us? Ken, is there a way for us to repair and, and make shuvah, make repentance, and come back and turn back to Hashem. And will even take us if we do, right? So you have a group of prophets that show up there, and then you have a group of post-exilic prophets that are after the exile. And these guys are really important because Israel's coming back to the land, but they have to rebuild, they have to remember who they are, they have to make repentance. They, I mean, 
they have you know they have a temple that that they that has been desecrated and been defamed and is in disarray and, and they have to come back and rebuild their lives and and restore their identity right who who were we before exile can we be those people again and again what is god going to do with us now like what what is our status what is our relationship now what what is our identity now who are we so prophets in a large part are crisis managers Prophets hear from God, yes, but prophets are also studied, very, very well studied. Isaiah had disciples, Jeremiah had disciples, Isaiah had schools of prophets that we know of, Ezekiel, I think it is, it has schools of prophets, right? Mentioned schools of prophets where where you had these prophets that would get together, and this is, I don't, I know that today there are modern day, like, schools of prophecy where people get together and pray and, you know, uh, anyway, I don't want to minimize or, or make fun, but that's not, this is not that, right? This ain't that. Um, these prophetic schools were about study um, of not only of scripture, but study of history. These men were very, very, and women were very, very well educated. It also, prophets were keenly able to uh, look at the times and look at the surroundings around them and and know what was going on. Um, they were very politically aware. They were, you know, geopolitically aware, domestically and, of course, you know, geopolitically foreign affairs aware. They were keen diplomats and, and you know, in the political mindset um, with the moving of kings and empires and different things. These, these people are not people that walk around six inches off the ground. And and kind of float around, and they have a, a word for you. You know, it's not that's not what a king, what a prophet is in this sense. Um, see, there's this this Hashem gives this Torah, right? And his Torah in Psalm one nineteen, Tehillim one nineteen, is described in all these ways as it's the way, it's the truth, it's it's you know, it's the light, it's it's the green pastures, it's um you know, it's blessing, it's bounty, and it's full of joy and all this stuff. So the idea is that we're all sheep. And we're as long as we stay obedient to the Torah, to the to the the commandments and the wisdom of the commandments, then we're in this protected, lush, green, beautiful pasture um, where there's shade, where there's water. It's just perfect, right? And it's beautiful, and it's nourishing, and it's safe and protected. And it's surrounded by a fence, and that fence is called the Torah, the commandments. And inevitably. Um, one of us will get a wild hair and we'll go like, man, the, the grass on the other side of that is really interesting. I'm going to go nibble. And we, you know, we stick our heads under the fence, through the fence, whatever, trying to get out to the, 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 the stuff that's on the other side. And inevitably we will break the fence to get to what's on the outside. And even though where we are is beautiful and, and, and right, we, we want what we can't have. And so we, we go there and, I have a few sheep, and and I bought them just so I could watch them mostly because the Bible calls us sheep, and we're like, what's the big deal with sheep? Well, here's an interesting thing about sheep that I've noticed, or mine at least, and mine might be a little off being this because they're mine, but what, sometimes one will just take off running, and it might only run like 20, 30, 40 feet, but everybody else runs right after it. Like, oh, look, some, so-and-so is running. Let's go run where they are, and then immediately they stop, and they put their head down, and they start eating. And then all of a sudden, one will run the other way. And, oh, everybody runs. And so when what happens generally in the community is when someone breaks through the fence of the Torah, i.e. breaks the commandments, walks in disobedience, 
we as people, we just go like, oh, that's cool. That's a new shiny thing. Let's go over there. So you have a gap in the fence. You have broken commandments and rebellion. And when you're outside of the fence, you're outside of the protection of the Torah, of the covenant. And so God sends a prophet to stand in the gap. You've heard that phrase before. We're going to stand in the gap for someone. Well, standing in the gap is a prophetic phrase that means you stand in the gap of the broken broken commandments and you call people back to repent and call them back to fidelity to the, to the commandments they've broken, back into the pasture, back into the Torah. And what is that going to take? It's going to take a turning to come back. That is teshuvah. That is repentance, right? So these prophets, um, you know, are not the ones that, you know, you, that, that, I mean, prophets today are used for a lot of things in churches, in American churches. They're used for membership drives and fundraisers and building fund, you know, thing and, and to buy the pastor, a, you know, a new vehicle or whatever. I mean, they're, uh, anyway, I don't want to get off on a soapbox on this because I could really rant on this, but some of you understand what I'm talking about. These biblical prophets are crisis managers. They see what's coming, and they speak on behalf of Hashem to leadership primarily. Now, you'll see in the prophets where it talks about the nation, the people, etc., etc., but these prophets, if you'll notice, they're mostly talking to the kings and priests, right? Because it's their fault that the, 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 the nation has gone astray. It's their duty and responsibility to lead the people in allegiance to Hashem and fidelity to Hashem. So what we have here in Isaiah chapter 7 is Isaiah right in before the uh, right during the Assyrian, you know, uh, takeover and uh, and and all this upheaval is going on and so he's speaking to Ahaz as Ahaz is freaking out and his message is take heed, be quiet, do not fear and don't let your heart be faint because of these these idiots that are that are blowing smoke, right? So that's going to wrap up this week's episode. Next week, we'll come back and we'll probably finish this up next week. So I love you guys. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. And until next week, shalom, shalom. Shalom.